Welcome to the Driving Dentistry Forward podcast, where successful dental pros and anyone who values the power of a smile can get an edge in the dynamic worlds of healthcare and business. Hosts Chuck Cohen and Rick Cohen speak with top influencers in the world of dentistry and explore essential tools, trends worth your time, and solutions that help you practice smarter. Welcome, everybody. Thank you very much for being here again. And today, I am very proud to be here with Amir Agai, the CEO and president of Invista Dental Holdings, uh, the spinoff from Danaher. Uh, Amir is an industry veteran who um, is going to share with us some of his observations and, some, and his personal life story uh, and talk to us a little bit about influence in dentistry and uh, influence in his life. So, Amir, thank you very much for being here today and congratulations for being on our list of the 32 most influential people in dentistry. Yeah, thank you so much, Chuck. I really appreciate it. Anytime. So, Amir, tell us a little bit about your journey, where you started, and how you ended up where you are today. Uh, you have a particularly interesting life story, and I hope you would share it with us. Oh, of course. Thank, thanks. Uh, uh, so, I'm Iranian, and uh, I was born in Iran, a suburb of Tehran. And, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, many of my peers, you know, parents, and education, in strong influence in getting as much education as possible. Uh, <laughs> went to uh, college when I was 16 years old and graduated when I was 20. Uh, industrial engineering background, and then uh, I, uh, as it was the norm at the time, I had to join the military as part of uh, military service. And this is where the war between Iran and Iraq started. So I ended up going uh, engineering officer in Iranian army in late 70s and early 80s. After that, I, I came to the United States to go to grad school uh, and uh, went to, uh, got a multiple degrees in applied mathematics and computer science. And then Hewlett Packard uh, came to campus, interviewed grads, uh, and ended up uh, being um, part of Hewlett Packard and, and got my MBA. And it started in the life science area gas chromatography, liquid chromatography, mass spectrometry, a variety of role in manufacturing, marketing, sales, and ended up going to uh, uh, Europe. I was always fascinated specifically at the time that wall was coming down. In early 90s, I went to Germany and then in Holland uh, for a few years and then ended up coming back to the United States in Denver, Colorado, as part of the test and measurement part of Hewlett-Packard. From there, after getting married and <laughs> moved to Singapore, this is the late 90s where uh, the dot-com and, and wireless was really booming. I was running a large uh, wireless business. And after the crash of dot-com, we ended up moving to Singapore. So I lived in Singapore for about four years. Our youngest uh, was born in Singapore while we were there for a few years. And then from there to Silicon Valley, and eventually Danaher in 2007, 2008, when we acquired Tektronix, which was at the time the largest acquisition of Danaher. So been in Danaher for quite some time and uh, various roles. And uh, in 2005, and almost uh, more than five years ago, I moved to Dental Platform at the time. And I can tell you that this has been one of the most uh, rewarding and fascinating jobs that I've ever had and because of the impact that it has. Uh, so, you know, a, quite a uh, <laughs> journey in here. I, you would have asked me, Chuck, 20 years ago, where you see yourself end up. I would have not at all envisioned 
been in dental and the role that I am, I've been very fortunate and blessed and uh, a lot of people that have influenced me along, uh, along the way. Well, it's interesting. I want to come back to the influence question. And first, let's, let's peel back the onion a little bit on your life story. What was it like to be in college at 16 in, in Iran? And uh, how did that go? Tell us a little bit about that. It sounds like it was quite an adventure. As you can imagine, you know, being a lot younger than everybody else, you were always treated with a little bit of a, you know, a geek, not, <laughs> not, not fitting the profile. I couldn't drive, I couldn't drink, I couldn't do any of that stuff. Uh, so, it, you know, it took a few years being in college. But, uh, you know, I, I, I just, I hate to say it, but uh, uh, I was really curious, intellectually very curious. Uh, I was really good in mathematics. Whatever shortcoming I had on the uh, <laughs> personal and popularity, I compensated for it through education and people that befriended me because they thought I could help them <laughs> wow. with school homework and other places. So I always had friends that uh, they saw a benefit through association. And, you know, over time, I ended up finding like-minded people and people that uh, uh, saw the work that I did. And then we became, you know, our friends have been friends with for over 40 years now. Right. Through that, through that process, you become a little bit uh, shy, a little bit introverted, and then you, you find your own footing after time, a little bit more and more as you gain confidence. But it was, it was quite a journey. And this is at the end of that time in university in Tehran, was where the revolution happened in Iran. So we were, I think I was the last group of people who graduated during previous regime, during Shah's time. So it quite a change was taking place during that time. And as you can imagine, being young and, you know, hot-headed a little bit, you always have grand ideas that you're going to change the world and do all of that, and not knowing the realities of what would it take to get things done. Um, I, I, I look back at it and, and see every step through that process has been a really interesting step in finding yourself, becoming more mature, becoming more experienced. I don't recommend it to go through all of that, but I, I cherish it for what took place. What was it like to leave your home country and come to the United States? And yeah. especially after 1979, after the revolution, yeah. when Iran and the United States were not quite getting along. Yeah, exactly, Chuck. At the time, even you know the hostage crisis and all that, it, it was quite by accident, I, I, I can tell you that. Um, but, you know, what I found, uh, there were a lot, there is what you hear in the news and all headline and what is really in, ingrained in the people. Uh, the middle class, uh, the people who went to college and were educated, there were always this affinity toward the West. You know, be it music, the, uh, the, the style, the, the, the fashion, the uh, role models, that has always been there. I remember the day that JFK was shot, the whole country shut down. And I was in the school. They basically, my grandmother came in and pulled me out of the school and took me home because, you know, it, there was a there was a square in Tehran that was called Kennedy, uh, and uh, so there was this affinity, this um, kind of a, a love toward uh, this notion of the America as a land of freedom that that was always there, and there was a lot of animosities as well as you can imagine towards some of the other pieces. So I, I, I was educated in more of a Western style of education. So when I came in, and I went to Atlanta at the time, uh, you know, you have this 
pre-notion that you know you're not going to be accepted. But whoever I met, wherever, whatever community I became part of, I found it to be really caring, loving, open, and uh, you know a whole lot of as I said the headline versus what is taking place. There was a huge discrepancy between the two, and I found it to be easy to get integrated. I found it to be well, uh, versed in, in, in this whole lot of uh, changes. And you can imagine at the early 80s in Atlanta also, uh, a lot of people are moving to the city and it was shifting and changing. And Andrew Young at the time was a mayor of the city and he had come back. He was the ambassador under Jimmy Carter to United Nations. Imagine the first black, um, you know, official and mayor. And he had made a serious attempt in creating that diversity in the city. So it's a vibrant city. You found a lot of people that they came for opportunities there. So I found it to be a quite an interesting uh, phenomenon. And, you know, for the first time being in America, that was uh, probably by far the best place that I could have imagined to be. Do you miss your homeland? You know, I, um, I, uh, the whole family started moving out piece by piece. Some had already left, some other, other. You know, there are some estimate that at the time of the 33, 34 million people, about a million people left Iran in the first 10 years of that. So on one hand, you had this, you knew that things were not getting better and there was a whole lot of complexities. On the other hand, you were thinking, I remember my grandfather was telling me, this is going to take generations before and uh, you, you either have a choice to just stay and go through it and have a choice to create better life for yourself and for your kids and for your grandkids. So on one hand, you feel, uh, you know, I went to war for that country. And uh, uh, your homeland, that's where you want to make an impact. You want to make a difference. On the other hand, more and more, it felt that you were an outsider. You were not fitting into the norm and what was uh, acceptable. And that was quite a difficult journey. I tried to kind of bridge the gap for a long time. And and there are many different ways to do that and try to kind of maintain, make an impact, be positive about it. But, you know, over time, I'm married to an American. My kids consider themselves American. You live in different parts of the world you recognize that you can make an impact wherever you are, and it doesn't have necessarily to be uh, where you grew up or where you were born. Uh, There there are obviously, there is this affinity toward being Iranian, being from that culture, which I will never lose. And I always, um, you know, uh, wear it as a badge of honor uh, to be that, but uh, try to kind of uh, recognize the realities of where we live in. Well, you said before that uh, there have been a number of people who have been influential with you. Influence is the, th- is the theme of the podcast. Right. Talk a little bit about those people who have influenced you. You mentioned your grandfather a few minutes ago, and it yeah. sounds to me like he shared a lot of wisdom with you in a very short sentence or two. Yeah, you know, the guy, the guy was a very well-educated man, even though he was uh, religious, but not a fanatic. Mm-hmm. Very, and he was very much into you know, helping and making an impact in the community. Uh, The door of the home that I grew up was open all the time. Whoever needed help, whoever needed whatever they needed, just walked in and they were welcome. And and that really kind of had an impact on me from that perspective. And then as you learn more and more, you go forward, 
you know, people like uh, like Juan Yu, uh, who is a founder of Singapore. I found him to be an inspiration of creating something that stands today as 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 a beacon of hope and equality and uh, one of the best possible examples that you can you can look at. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a guy who's very into perseverance. You know, Sir uh, Hillary uh, Edmund Hillary, who climbed Everest. Uh, you know, think about it. At the time, with limited gears and such to go do that, and and uh, set your sight that that's what I want to do. Go after it and try to get that done. You know, these characters are the one that really have always tried not necessarily model myself against them, but try to learn from them. Dalai Lama, another example. I hope I had to hit patience and, and the emotional intelligence that he has. But I'm trying to kind of see, learn, watch, and try to exhibit some of those behavior to the best of my ability, being authentic of uh, myself, but try to learn some of these best behaviors and things, try to replicate it in a, in a very uh, natural way. Interesting. Well, your journey has been very interesting. Talk a little bit about your dental journey. Yeah. Um, you, you sort. My recollection is you were sort of accidental to dental. Um, <laughs> it wasn't like intentional. Like I was, I grew up in dental. So talk to talk a little bit about how you ended up uh, joining the dental division of Danaher. Well, yeah, in Danaher, you know, in 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 the at the time the Danaher leadership team, we all had multiple roles to play. So, for example, even though I was the president of Tektronix, I also acted as Danaher president of Russia. And, and that gave me an opportunity to kind of this. And this is at the time of, you know, when they put all the sanctions in there. So at the time, I managed and led the Danaher innovation process. So you play multiple roles. That gives you an opportunity to have influence, to learn the business. So last role I had before dental, I was running the Danaher communication platform. And through that process, we decided that, we're going to join that communication with a company called NetScout and create a, a spin-off out of Danaher. And as I was going through that, there were a whole lot of changes they were taking inside the dental. And I really didn't know much about it at all, Chuck. <laughs> so through discussion at the time with Tom Joyce, Jim Deco, prior to that, Larry Cole, uh, we got to a point that, hey, there's an opportunity. And we think that your experience, your background would be of value on the dental side. And, and at the same time, we knew we had some challenges in Europe as well. So we agreed for me to move to Germany. Mm-hmm. And uh, so family, uh, we moved to Germany. We live in Munich and Biberach is about an hour and a half from there. And, I mean, you and I traveled there together. And we did. So we had an opportunity to live in Germany, to become part of that process. And then a whole lot of other changes took place that, uh, you know, one thing led to another. I remember, I, I think I was talking to you, said, you know, normally people who come to dental, they never leave. <laughs> That's true. I'm an example, right? So here you are. Now, now, you're, ne- now you're never going to leave. <laughs> Hotel California. You Hotel come California. Here, you never... <laughs> That's exactly right. You can so come, I, you, but I, you never leave. But I, since I've gotten here, and I mean that sincerely, I, the more I learn about it, the more I like it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I, I've been really fortunate. I've been really fortunate that by accident, I ended up being where I am. By accident, we decided, not accident, but it was, I didn't plan to be a CEO of a publicly traded company, Dental, but that has happened. So uh, uh, all of that has been, you know, I, I, 
I'm, I'm blessed and I appreciate that every day and try to not to take it for granted. Let's talk a little bit about influence. Um, what does influence mean to you? And where are some areas that you have been influenced and you influence those in your organization? And how does that work? So, you know, there's, uh, to me, uh, there's a range in here that you tell people what to do. And, and, and in some places, honestly, that's what you got to do. When the house is burning. You got to, you don't sit around and have a conversation. And if anything, in the past five or six months have shown us the leadership when it's needed, that you got to act quickly to take the safe and help of your employees, your customers, and your shareholders in mind. But uh, influence is uh, more of a leading by example, being a role model, and demonstrating the values that you really truly believe. If you continue to do that, if people see your intentions are genuine, you're trying to do the right thing, I think you gain that followership and you get that influence that you desire, either by intention or by default. And, and, you know, people who have influenced me, I have observed them. I am, as I said, truly believe in this uh, perseverance and intellectual curiosity, constantly watching and learning from um, people who are quite successful, who have done things. You know, when I came to Danner, I sat through some of the reviews. Jim Leco, CEO of Fortive, really good example. Barbara Hewlett. Um, really good example, Larry Cole, Tom Joyce, and many others, yourself in the dental, uh, and, and many others are watching to see the passion about what they were doing, how they were trying to be helpful, how try to kind of influence people. And, you know, you can't just read it and watch it and repeat it. You got to internalize it. And so I've tried to kind of get some of those best uh, element and try to internalize it. So I'll make myself better, become the best version of myself in an ongoing basis. I consider like myself a lifetime student that I'm in a learning journey. And I never believe that I have it all figured out or I have all the answers. <laughs> right. I'm constantly open. Hopefully people who know me, they know that open for debate, open for discussion, when I make up my mind, I make up my mind and I'll go do it. But I don't do it because it is my idea. I do it because I believe this is the right thing to do. And and I try to kind of uh, um, those learning, pass those learning back and have an influence and have a positive influence around myself as well. Can you talk about a time when you or Invista were really influencing where dentistry is going? Can you talk about a time where maybe today or maybe before where Invista and you, by definition, are really influencing dentistry in a big way. Yeah, so I can think of a couple of areas. Uh, you know, when uh, I remember when we started getting into the clear aligner place mm -hmm. and uh, there were a lot of questions, you know, hey, it's a huge market, you don't have any presence, what makes you think that you can do anything different in here? And we started sitting back and thinking about, you know, what needs are we trying to address? What is that unmet needs? And how can we really create uh, uh, something different in here? And then uh, we said, oh, it starts with the product. we got to make sure that the product stands on its own. It has all the qualities that a practitioner needs to say, I'm going to create the best possible outcome. Okay, now that you have that, <laughs> I call it the point of entry. 
Yeah, you have to have that before you do anything. Now start thinking about how do I create a difference? How do I influence the decision making? And it's a combination of things. The care that you have for practitioner, for dentists, the care that you have for customers, the level of service, making yourself available and vulnerable, mm-hmm. listening to feedback, listening to outcome, and then continue to improve what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Taking pride. I mean, I, I, I can't tell you the, the Spark team, uh, they take pride for what they do every day. They take it personally. You don't have to tell them. They take it personally. It's my responsibility to do that. When people see that, they are influenced by, you know, saying that, okay, I get it. These people that have so much passion, so much pride around it. And I think we are making a difference. We are influencing the orthodontist and the ortho and a small portion. We're not suggesting that we're influencing in order to see possibilities, to see alternatives and combination treatment and having more of a choice in here. That's one example of it. And, and many other product categories, we look at it in that format. But also, you know, there is, there is another element in here, Chuck. I, when it comes to the emerging market, when it comes to the high growth market, I take a step back and I say, you know, take a look at dentists per capita, mm-hmm. Switzerland, Germany, US, Japan. And then I look in Latin America, 460 million people, the number of people who have simple access to dental care. And they say, we got a responsibility. We, as leader of this industry, have a responsibility by being present, by you know, simplifying that, by making, democratizing it, by helping those people to get some of these basic necessities. I feel like what we are doing in China is having an impact. It's, it's going our business, obviously, but it, it was, you have to do good to see good things happen. You have to do the right thing. Do you, do you, it's interesting to hear you speak in the last few minutes about the rest of the world, the emerging markets. Do you think that your background, your, your, your Iranian heritage has something to do with your passion for that topic? Oh, absolutely. I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't discount that at all. You know, uh, it's about possibilities, but you provide possibilities. When you level the playing field, like you, you're going to see a different behavior than when you limit options. I listen to injustice and inequalities and the things that are happening in the United States. If you level the playing field, and I'm not suggesting that that's going to happen overnight and in one shot. If you give people possibilities that I have had, mm-hmm. I think you're going to see a very different type of behavior. So that I truly believe, and you know, bringing dental care, offering a diverse environment, taking you know uh, integration and diversity and inclusion as as in your mindset and your the way operation operationalizing it has a positive impact because you give people a chance to be what they can be, the best of what they can be, and uh, so I, I think. I, I received it, and, and, and uh, I know it's been an exception, but, you know, you can create those exceptions right. more and more. We have an opportunity now to create those exceptions right. and, and, and kind of a more of a normalize it rather than one of a kind. Interesting. Um, let's switch a little bit. Still talking about influence, but talk a little bit about the product side. So right. the, 
Hatha proceeds, the question is, when, you look, when we look at the 32 most influential list, right, there are people on there like Gordon Christensen who influenced their, their ideas. And then there are people on there like uh, uh, Joe Hogan who influences through Invisalign and the, and the, and the track record that they have. Uh, a couple of people from the ADA, and they influence right. through lobbying and ideas and organizing dentists together. And then we have five congressmen who are influencing by creating laws. You're the CEO of a company that makes stuff, makes products. Right. How is it that products can be influential? Because when it's all said and done, yeah. that's really the, where, where the bread and butter is at Invisto. So talk about the influence that products have in a, in a, in a market like dentistry. Yeah, that's, that's a really good angle to look at it. I so again, coming from outside uh, dentistry, and say, why is it that it is not available to everybody? Mm-hmm. I, I go down the path, and it's just a hypothesis. I don't have any facts to prove it. I think it is three reasons. Mm-hmm. I think it is skills. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at 1.8 million dentists worldwide. That number is pretty limited. You got to go get a bachelor of science, and you got to go get yeah, five years, seven years. Mm-hmm. It takes a long time to become an expert. And it, it, a lot of money it takes to become a dentist. And then 10 or 15 years of practice, 20 years of oral surgery, it is a very long skills. It's really important. Mm-hmm. So second one is about cost. Mm-hmm. It's costly. Um, and in, a lot of it is out of pocket. And, and it is not available to a lot of people because of the cost. Costly the to cost the patient, that, you mean? Cost costly to the patient. Exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. exactly. Exactly. Cost to the patient. You, it, uh, you know, last year, yeah, in 2019, 20 million implants were placed worldwide mm-hmm. and 12 million people. So, a lot. so can you imagine how many people can use an implant? Billions. Can you imagine all of us, all of us at some point needed right. only 12 million people. They can't afford it. They can't, they're qualified. They can do it. They, they, they can't afford it. We think that penetration is 5%. And so cost, and then you can call it fear, you can call it the pain, you can call it time to healing, but this is a complicated process. You know, getting an implant sometimes costs, it takes six to nine months, going to an ortho treatment, 18 months, you know, uh, it, so it's, and it's uncomfortable, it's, it's, it's painful. So skills cost pain. Or time to. So I take a step back and say, well, how do you change it? How do you influence the industry? Develop product, services, software that simplify the skill. Take the art, automate it, simplify it. And I can talk more about it, what it, what it looks like. Mm-hmm. Try to reduce the cost of treatment. If it is simple, if you don't have to go back on the chair over and over and over, you can reduce the cost. You talk about clear aligner, a great example of chair time reduction. And then try to get that healing time a lot faster. Take the pain away. So I look at, at the very broad sense, what we do got to influence these three things. Everything we do got to influence these three things to bring dental care to masses. And I can talk for days yeah. <laughs> about these things because I honestly believe this is what it is. This is how you can influence the industry. Can you give an example of a product that you guys have developed and made uh, popular that uh, checks those three boxes? Yeah, so 
N1, it's a new implant that it is out, is introduced in Europe. It's the outcome of five years and millions of dollars of the investment. And so many people have done so good a job with universities, with key opinion leaders. So how is that checking all those three boxes? Uh, it is much easier to place it when it comes to the skills. You don't need six or seven drills. You need one or two. It's much simpler. It is the cost of treatment is a lot less, and I explain that why. It causes a lot less damage. The RPM that is used on those drills is less than 50 RPM versus 1,000. So, Chuck, you know this very well. You're sitting in there, and a 1,000 RPM drill is going next to you. Your head, your body is shaking. I have sat in front of somebody who has placed an implant with a 50 RPM. The patient doesn't even know it. There is no noise. You cause a lot less damage to the tissue, to bone. The healing time is a lot faster. The chair time is a lot quicker. So it's a product that checks all these boxes. And you don't have, I mean, I have tremendous amount of respect for people who have been doing this for 20, 25 years. But it takes 20, 25 years to get. So I've been, I was in Washington, D.C., an oral surgeon that I really respect with two interns showed me what he has been doing versus the two interns and showed me what those are able to do after 20 or 30 implant placement. Okay. But same quality. So imagine the possibilities that you can do that through automation, through robotics, through guided surgery, through Spark, through software, through DTX. You're able to do that to bring cost down, skill simplified, and get better solution. These are examples of how you can really change the nature of the industry. That's exciting. I mean, that's that's really interesting. And and I think that um, many people, maybe who are listening, maybe who read our, our, the articles, sort of say, well, I understand why Gordon Christensen is an influencer. I have a little more trouble seeing how Amir or Don Casey from Den Supply or Stanley Bergman from Shine, how those people who just peddle products can be influencers. I think you're your explanation here was very helpful. So I, I think that was very, very good. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so as we look out into dentistry, give us a little preview about what you think uh, the next four or five years are going to be like. And the follow-up question I'll give you a heads up is going to be, how, is, uh, Amir, how are Amir and the Invista team going to be influencing where dentistry is going? Yeah, happy to do it. We have, we have a set of high, you know, sort of assumptions about what we call macro trends, the macro trends in the industry. Uh, top of that is IT for simplification. A lot of people talk about digitization. I talk IT. You know, you go to industries. I come from semiconductor, electronic industry, life sciences. IT came to those industries in 70s, 80s, 90s. IT collapsing into the dental industry now. We have seen it in the past six to nine months, virtualization, remote diagnostics, remote capabilities, but also a whole lot of IT in order to be able to do guided surgery, software as an influence of any grade in various images. IT is coming and is coming with force. Second part of this, I think this is becoming a female industry. What I mean by that, it's always been, you know, females have been the decision maker when they go to dentists, but 60 to 65, depending on some geographies in Brazil, 75% of the graduates out of a school 
are female. Mm -hmm. It's by choice. It's not by accident. They want to have choice. They want a quality of life. These new graduates, this new female, they have a very different view of the industry than the previous generation. They want to have life choices. The, the uh, advocacy and their brand loyalties are very different uh, than, than and, and, you know, the movement of the hand, the, how they do things. is So the female play an important role in this industry as it's transitioned over the next five or 10 years. Um, emerging market, we talked about that. And I think it's going to be an important factor in here. The middle class, more and more people having access, the internet playing that role. And last but not least, I think DSOs are going to be a really important factor in these industries uh, because it's becoming professionalized. It's becoming, you know, they have their own procurement, the IT system, the purchasing. Uh, it, it's painful at, at the time, but it is the right thing because it, you take it to suburb, you take it to rural areas, you take it to second tier, third tier cities. In China, you take the public to the private piece. I think these are the macro trends that it is impacting the industry. I take a step back and say, okay, that's what's happening. What am I going to do? I'm not answering your second question. Uh, I want to be exactly what I talked about on the skills and cost and, and pain or time to heal. I want to be ahead of that and I want to simplify it. I want to make it easier to accelerate that process. I want to have the product that is not only reliable and meet the requirement, that's the table stake, right. but it demonstrate proficiency, efficiency in the process. People see it, they buy it, they have a brand that they can depend on, and it does exactly the clinical outcome that they want. I want to develop software that hold it together, bring it together, simplify the process. You don't go from one platform to the next. And I want to create a workflow that depend on the procedure has the best possible opportunities on the outcome. I want to provide the service, the training and education to bring people up to speed, to let best practices to be shared as quickly as possible. And I want to be in major metropolitan areas around the world. I want to make democratize and make that happen. I want to give the people access to it. Doing the right thing, doing the good thing, for the industry would have positive impact for us as a company and for the industry as a whole. This industry has decades, if not centuries, runway ahead of it. And we have a, we have a responsibility as CEOs and leaders of this industry to make that real, to make the hard decision, to create those equality and involvement of the minorities in the process. We have a responsibility. We have a role to play in here. I'm taking that very seriously personally, and, and Vista is taking it very seriously. Good for you. Um, Follow-up question. Uh, if I gave you the, ma the proverbial magic wand and you can change one or two things about dentistry, what would you wave the wand and what would you, what would you change? Yeah, technology, technology adoption. You know, I think, I think that would... Uh, kind of accelerate things, accelerate. And, and, and I don't necessarily all mean software and imaging, technology in use of procurement processes, technology in uh, using patient data, enabling patient to go online and see their history, technology in 
ability to really pay things online. More technology coming in across the board and taking waste statuses. We come from Danaher and the notion of the continuous improvement. When we see things, when I see things, it really allows me to take a look at it, say there is a better way of doing things. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to say this, and I, it may not be very popular, but I'm going to say it. Please. You look at millions of dollars of equipment and offices sitting around the world, and they're not being used. How do you make it? How do you get more and more use out of that asset, that utilization? It bothers me that we're not getting that. So how do you make it more available for people who need it, for people who can't afford building a million-dollar office? I think technology, scheduling, remote, make that available. If we can, if we can embrace that, all of us lean in a little bit, I think it would, it would make a huge difference in here. Well, and on that note, I think that's a great place to sort of put a pin in it and stop and say, Amir, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for taking the time to share some of your thoughts about being an influencer. Congratulations again on being one of the 32 most influential people in dentistry. Proud to have you on the list, and it's very, very well-deserved. So thanks for all you do for dentistry, and thanks for being here today. Thank you so much, Chuck. I appreciate it. Anytime, Amir. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening in. Don't want to miss an episode of the Driving Dentistry Forward podcast? Subscribe today on your favorite podcast app.